In the middle of Parshas Re'eh, in the beginning of Parakut Gimel, we learn about the concept of a Navi Sheker, a false prophet. The Torah describes the phenomenon, Navi if somebody who seems to be a prophet or someone who's dreaming and predicting the future, and they give you even signs, Nasan Elcha Os Omofes, and it happens, and based on that, they tell you, they try to lead you astray to worship other gods, to worship Avodah Who, Of course, you should ignore this Navi, this prophet. But of course, this is just some kind of a test. But certainly you should ignore this. This is a false prophet and he's taking you down a road uh, and a path of spiritual uh, destruction. This Parsha, in addition to the halachic issues which are discussed and very fascinating, but also raises two interesting and very, very basic questions that the Mafarshi Hapshat try to deal with it. And that is, number one, if the person is in fact a false Navi, he's a Navi Sheker, so then why is he referred to as a Navi at all? It seems to be by definition, if he's false, he's not a Navi. So what, what is going on? Uh, and a second question, which we'll try to address as well, which is, the Torah does seem to say that he will have an os or a mofseis, he'll be able to give you and show you signs and wonders. Well, why would Hashem, why would uh, Hashem give the person, this false prophet, the power to do that, when obviously he's using that for negative intentions? So starting with the first question, why is he called a Navi? In fact, he's not at all. He's just a charlatan. He's a faker. So, in fact, that is the position of Rabbeinu Bachai. Rabbeinu Bachai says he is a, a charlatan. He is a faker. There is no powers. And, in fact, the Torah is just using the term Navi because that's what he refers to himself. Since he calls himself a Navi, he projects that he himself is a Navi. So the Torah describes this person who presents himself as a Navi, but, in fact, is a Navi Shaker. However... Many other Rishonim assume that, in fact, he's called a Navi because he may actually possess some kind of powers. Uh, notably, the Ramban says that this person may actually have uh, what we might call a natural talent to predict the future. Maybe like a psychic or somebody who has actual powers, not necessarily a fraud, says Ramban. He has actual powers to predict the future. Nevertheless, says Ramban, he is considered a Navi Sheker because he does not acknowledge that the source of his abilities come from Hashem. And he's obviously also using them for very negative consequences and intentions. And in that sense, he's Sheker. But he's called a Navi, says Ramban, because in fact he may actually have some type of power. It's very interesting, Machloket, between Barabena Bachaye, among others, and the Ramban, among others. Now, moving on to that second question, which is why would the Torah describe twice about he gives you an os or a moface, and then all of a sudden now you don't know what to do? Uh, you know, why would Hashem give somebody who's in fact. Uh, he has these ill intentions, why would Hashem allow him to have some kind of an os or a mofes? So, Ibn Ezra, among others, actually denies it. He says, no, of course not. He doesn't have actual powers, similar to what Rabbi Bechai said before. He doesn't have actual powers, he's not an actual prophet. Rather, Ibn Ezra has a number of suggestions, but his first is that maybe he overheard a real Navi predicting something in the future, and in that sense he kind of steals, he piggybacks off of the real Navi's a prediction, and then he also kind of pretends that he has that prediction, that he has that knowledge on his own, and therefore tries to use that knowledge to steer you in a bad direction towards 
Avodah Zarah. So if he got anything right, it's just because perhaps suggests to Eben Ezra he overheard an actual uh, real Navi. Abar Benel also assumes that it's just kind of some, some kind of smoke and mirrors, but not an actual Osir Mofes. And the Abar Benel actually says you could be Medayik that in the Pasuk, because it says that Venosan Elecha Osir Mofes, he will give you a sign or a wonder. It does not say Vaasa, and he will make. And the Abarbanel is Medayik, he infers from here that in fact, it's all in the presentation. He has, you know, fast hands. He can make it appear that something's going on, even, perhaps even some kind of a magic with his hands, but not that he's actually changing uh, nature and changing the Derech That's something that only a real Navi could do, and that's why it just says the Nasan. He makes it appear, he presents it to you, but not that he actually did anything. So the first approach is basically, despite the fact that it says, Osamofes, there isn't really anything, certainly not the way a real Navi would have. On the other hand, Rashi, at least implicitly, seems to assume that there really is, and in fact, some kind of a supernatural power that this person has. And Rashi just teases out and develops uh, what is already, I guess you could say, implicit in the Pasuk. And Rashi says, Why would Hashem give this person uh, this kind of a power? To make some kind of a supernatural sign as the Pasuk then continues and says because in fact Hashem is testing us Ramban develops this idea and explains consistent with what he says in other places in the Torah that the purpose of a test is in order not to give Hashem knowledge will we pass the test or not Hashem doesn't need confirmation Hashem knows where our heart is and Hashem knows even what we'll do in the future rather the purpose of the test is for the one who actually is being tested it's to our benefit by resisting the Navi Sheker, despite his parent powers, and steadfastly remaining loyal to Hashem, then we become more aware of our own attachment and love to Hashem, and this will actually impact and benefit us in the future. So for our benefit, Hashem is testing us. Interestingly, the Rambam in the third, para, third section of Mora Nevuchim denies that uh, the Navi Sheker would have any actual power, but whatever he's, actu- whatever he's doing with his sleight of hand or his predictive abilities, but Ram- Rambam also thinks it's for the purpose of a test, but Lashita so, the Rambam thinks that what's the purpose of these tests, whether it would be Avram, Avinu, and Bereshis, or the Jewish people now, that is to show other people, in order to, so to speak, boast. Hashem, so to speak, wants to kevel, he wants people to boast about his beloved children, the Jewish people, and look to the world. You see, look, the Jewish people, despite uh, somebody being having some kind of a powers, or appearing to have powers, the Jewish people remain steadfastly loyal. So these were shown in Rashi, Rambam, Ramban, assume that there is some kind of a power on some level, or at least an appearance of one, but it is done to test us. At the outside of this week's Parsha, the Jewish people are told about an event or a ceremony that will take place in the near future when they eventually cross over the Ardain and enter into the land of Israel. As the Torah tells us in Perak Aleph, Pasuk Haftas, Eventually, when you go into the land of Israel, the land that Hashem has promised will be your inheritance. There will be this ceremony, this event that will take place, where, as the Torah will describe, some segment of the Jewish people will go up on top of one mountain known as Har Grizim, and they will listen to blessings being pronounced by the Kohanim, the Leviim, down in the, the valley, and they will answer Amen to those. And the other half, the other part of the Jewish people will be on a different mountain, on Har Eval, 
they will hear the unfortunate potential curses, the punishments that the Jewish people will endure if they don't listen to Hashem, and they will answer Amen and affirm that condition. Later on in uh, Sefer Dvarim, in a few prokim, when we get to Parshish Kisavo and Perach <coughs> there the Torah lists with more specificity which specific tribes will be the ones who stand on Har Grizim to listen to the blessings and affirm those, and which will be those who stand on Har Eval, listen to the curses, the klolot, and have to affirm those. This is the famous event that is being described here in the Torah, which will take place only eventually when the Jewish people initially enter into the land of Israel. In the Sefer Be'er Yosef, he asks what may seem at first to be a technical or very narrow question, but in fact it leads him to suggest an answer of profound significance that gets to the heart of what makes the Jewish people unique and what is so special about the relationship the Jewish people have with Hashem. The question he asks, as I say, is a very simple and straightforward one once you hear him ask it. And that is, he points out that seems to be a little bit odd that if the Shevet Levi, the Quanim Levim, are the ones talking and they're down in the valley, the Jewish people who are merely the listeners, the audience, they're up on top of the mountain. After all, he says, usually Derech HaOlam is Shekom Yishem Edaber El HaKahal, Hu Ola Al HaBama Lamal, Omashmiyas Dvarav Lefnei Am HaOmdim Lamata, Kadesh HaKulam Yishemuyas Dvarav. Usually it's the speaker, we know, whether you're in a shul or a base medrash or a conference hall or a meeting or an office place, if anything, it is the speaker who usually takes a few steps up onto a stage or goes to a lectern so that the speaker can be heard better, can be seen by all, and it's the audience that's sitting down below. Here we have a reverse of what would be typically expected. It is the speakers who are down below, and the audience is up above on top of the mountain. Why should that be the case? So as I say, this seems to be a somewhat uh, innocuous, maybe even technical <laughs> uh, kind of a question, and yet, says the Be'er Yosef, this is perhaps coming to hint at and allude to something of profound importance, getting to the heart and to the nature of the Jewish people. And that is, What makes the Jewish people unique is that we have this incredibly unique relationship with Hashem. We are constantly under the direct and intense guidance and a watch, the Hashkacha, of Hashem, unique more than any other nation in the world. As a result of that, sometimes we are blessed more than any other nation, other times we may be unfortunately punished more than any other nation. But both the blessings and the punishments, the good and the bad, they both equally testify to the fact that Jewish people are always in unique status, in a unique relationship, in a unique situation with Hashem. In order to further develop and prove this idea, he quotes a very well-known Gemara from Masech Taksubus, a tragic Gemara, that describes the events that took place during the time of the Churban Bayes Hasheni, the destruction of the second base of Mikdash, in which there was, in addition to, of course, the destruction of the actual base of Mikdash, the Jewish people themselves though, were ravaged. And this particular Gemara is speaking about the immense and enormous poverty the Jewish people were suffering from during those days. And the Gemara describes how the daughter of Anakdimon ben Gurion, who was one of, if not the wealthiest person in all of Yerushalayim, the Gemara describes the enormous wealth that he possessed before the Chorban, and yet, because of the events surrounding the destruction of the Mesemikdash, he, along with everyone, but even someone who had previously had such enormous wealth, he was devastated in such a desperate state of poverty, says the Gemara, that his daughter was so starving, so desperate, so hungry, that she was scrounging around in the remains of uh, the Arab, um, 
animals. And uh, when they would uh, have to go to the bathroom, that which remained, she was scouring through that, as disgusting as that sounds, because maybe there were some undigested uh, barley kernels that she could uh, eat from. That's how desperate the situation was. That's how impoverished, that's how hungry she was, and certainly by extension, anybody else. But given the fact that they had had such enormous wealth, seeing the daughter of such a rich, noble person uh, being so desperate and so hungry, of course, was a shocking thing. And the Gemara describes Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, none other than the great Tan, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, he saw her, and when he saw her, he cried. And then he said, Ashreichem Yisrael, praised and special and fortunate are the Jewish people, that you see that when we listen to Hashem, we get rewarded incredibly. When we, get, when we don't listen to Hashem, we get punished, even in such a desperate and difficult situation. That's the Gemara. So comes along the Maharsha and that Gemara and says, I understand that Rabbi Yochum and Zakkai cried, but how come the first things out of his mouth are Ashrechem Yisrael? Praised is fortunate to the Jewish people. That's not praiseworthy, that's Nebuch, that's so sad to see our punishment being so severe. And says the Maharsha, no, that's exactly the point. Of course it's terrible and sad to see such a severe punishment, but the fact that the punishment was so severe... That itself testifies to the Jewish people's unique status and unique situation. Because, says the Maharsha, since we have direct connection to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, even more so than any other nation, because we have a uniquely intensive Hashkacha that we are under from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, more than any other nation, as a result, when we get rewarded, the highs are the high. Our highs are greater than any other nation. However, unfortunately, if we don't do Hashem's will and we deserve to get punished, our punishments will be the worst of the worst, will be the lowest of the low. It is all, in a certain sense, or nothing. Therefore says the Marsha, and says the Ber Yosef, in summary, we see Gam Meyiridasam Vishiflusam Hanorasha Yisrael is also Nikar Unoda Gadlusam. The fact that the lows of the Jewish people are so atypical and uncharacteristic in and of itself testifies to the unique nature of the Jewish people. Now this is sometimes perhaps hard to hear, but we understand, says the Ber Yosef, that our highs, but unfortunately our lows, historic and even current, are equally testament to the unique nature of the Jewish people. And therefore, he says, get it back to our parsha. that's why the Jewish people stood on top of the mountain, to show that no matter what, we're always on top in our relationship with Hashem. In this week's parsha in Parak Yedalad, Pasuk Aleph, we are informed of the prohibition known as lo siskodidu. What exactly does that mean? So in the simple, straightforward context of the Torah text, this seems to refer to a prohibition of cutting oneself. And the context seems to be that in the ancient pagan world, as part of their mourning rituals, they were so overwhelmed with grief that they would actually do self-harm. They would cut themselves. And the Jewish people are being told that they should be different and they're not allowed to do so. However, there is an additional layer of interpretation that the Gemara in Masechta Yevamos and Daf Yudal Aleph tells us that according to Tarsh Shabbat Peh, it's kind of a play on words, not los eskodiru, don't cut yourself, but los sa'asu, Agudos, agudos. Don't make many, many different groups. In other words, there shouldn't be too much factionalism within the Jewish people. Just like you can't, quote-unquote, cut yourself, we also shouldn't cut, so to speak, the Jewish people into too many fine slices. What exactly are the parameters of this? Well, that's a very complicated discussion, but the bottom line in the Gemara Masech Yivamos there, from the opinion of Rava, seems to be that if you have a certain amount of distance, maybe you have a big city and there are two different sub-communities within the city, two different Batei Din, or two different cities entirely, then they're allowed to each have their own practices and their own positions. However, says the Gemara in the name of Rava, if you have a single Bezdin in which some of the people, some of the community members, some of the community leaders have one practice and the other members of the community, other leaders have a different practice. So that is a violation of losasu agudos agudos, that is too much 
uh, differentiation, too much factionalism, which can create problems. What exactly is the problem? Why is it, in, whenever exactly this prohibition applies, why is there a problem of people doing different things, potentially? So Rashi explains that it could be a theological problem, a Ben Amlamakum problem, because if in one place you see two different people shaking the lulu two different ways, blowing the shofar two different ways, accepting two different types of kashrus, etc., etc., you might think that there's more than one Torah. It's confusing. What did Hashem exactly want? What does the Torah want? However, the Rambam in Tokos of says, no, it's an interpersonal concern. It's a Ben Amlamakum concern. That is, if different people, with each with their own passionately held belief, in very close quarters, are doing different things, that has the very natural potential, if not likelihood, if not inevitability, to lead to machlokas. And therefore, when people are in a small, self-contained community, a certain level of unity needs to be maintained in order that we don't go to the machlokas. While it's possible to argue, and in fact some have, on a halachic level, that these are two distinct interpretations, and there may even be nafkamina, practical differences in halacha between the two, for our purposes, I think we can view these not as distinct, but in fact or competing, but actually complementary interpretations. There are two possible problems with too much factionalism and too much division in the Jewish people. Either it could be a theological problem, or it could create a problem of disunity of machlokas. But this l'chora begs the question, if we have either of these concerns, and certainly the ones about getting along, why do we allow any differentiation? Whether it's two cities or a big city, we should say no. All times, all communities, all people, all always have to do the exact same thing. We all have to practice religion and mitzvot in the same way. Why isn't that the halacha? Why do we have any room and space for differentiation and uniqueness? So the Chavetz Chaim in his commentary to the Torah here on our parsha explains that this is, in fact, the Torah's and Yiddishkeit's profound, profound in teaching that while we want achdus, we don't want achidus. We want unity but we absolutely do not want uniformity. And the Chavetz Chaim gave a very famous parable, a mushal. It's just like an army needs different divisions, each one with their own unique and distinct and incredibly important mission. The Navy has a different mission than the Marines, than the Air Force, than the Army, and even within each of those, there are many different subdivisions. And if they did the same thing as another group, another unit, another brigade, they'd be redundant and unnecessary. The greatness and the power of the army is that each one is doing something differently. So too, in the army of Hashem, we have different drachim, each tribe has their own path to Hashem, each community has their their own way, and in fact all of them are needed to create a reality in which the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. We have at least one example in the Torah itself of exactly this problem where unity gets taken too far in a very, very damaging way. In Sefer Bereshis, if we read about the Dor HaFlaga, the Tower of Bavel, and we know that they built this tower up to the heavens and Hashem got very upset at them and punished them, but it's not at all clear from the Torah text what they did wrong. All we know about them is, according to the Torah, achadim. they had a single language and they were very unified. What seems so bad about that? Why were they punished? And there are very different interpretations to that. But the Nitziv in his commentary Hamakdavar there explains that it's exactly this, that the Tower of Bavel, that generation, they became a pre-modern, totalitarian state, the type that we're familiar with from uh, the 20th century, and I hope not encroaching on the 21st century. It became a totalitarian state, says the Nitziv, with an enforced speech code and thought police. No one was able to say anything different than anybody else. No one was able to think anything differently than anybody else. And in fact, they enforced that with severe, severe punishment, even killing people who thought or spoke differently than each other. Says the Hamikdaver, this is an example of unity going to its extreme in a very negative and a destructive way. Too much unity is, in fact, a bad thing. There is such a thing as too much. If it becomes 
blinding uniformity becomes totalitarianism where everyone has to think and talk the same, that is a problem. That's not what we want, as the Chavetz Chaim taught us. We want unity, achtus, but not uniformity. This is why many Mepharshim explain that even though Yaakov was trying to create harmony and unity among his sons on his deathbed when he blessed the tribes, he gave each of them different and distinct brachos. You might have suggested you should give one bracha to all of them, or the exact same bracha to all of them. That would be the best way to foster unity. Why does he give them different brachos, which might naturally lead to jealousy? And the answer is because he's teaching them, and hopefully us, exactly this point. We don't want all tribes to be the same. They have natural inclinations and strengths which lead them into different ways, and we want each of the tribes, each of the shvatim, to embrace those differences and to do great things with those. Nevertheless, as Yaakov says towards the end of the brachos, if they all realize that they're unified in purpose and they're all on the same team as it were, then their, dist- their differences, in fact, enhance the whole. The whole will come greater than some of its parts as each one of them will contribute to their unique talents and therefore the whole of the Jewish people will be better because of the distinctions and the differences between them. While there are much more to add on this in this vein, I just want to conclude with the famous words of the Archa Shulchan, who explains that the reason we have so much machlokes in halacha, which sometimes frustrates people, is in fact the beauty of halacha. After all, he says, we know the Torah is sometimes compared to a song. And therefore he says, just like an orchestra, the beauty of an orchestra, of a choir, is different different instruments, different voices, that comes together and harmonizes in a beautiful way, so too in the Torah, what makes the Torah beautiful is the different opinions harmonizing together. This week's parsha, we learn about the simanum of the fish, which physical characteristics determine the kosher status of a fish, snapir, vikaskeses, fins, and scales. Chazal in Masech Danida, and in a parallel text in Masech Tachulun, interestingly tell us that sometimes, if we just identify initially the kaskeses, the scales of a fish, even if we haven't yet found the snapir, the fin, we can presume that it has it. Any fish that has kaskeses will definitely also have a snapir. However, we are taught not necessarily in the opposite direction. Some will have a fin, a snapir, but not necessarily a kaskeses. And again, as we said and we see in our parsha, you need both to actually be kosher. Two great thinkers saw a similar spiritual lesson, a deeper message embedded in this seemingly technical halacha about the kashras of a fish. One of these thinkers was from Eretz Yisrael, the other from the United States. One was a leading Hasidic rebbe and thinker, and the other a halachic master and leader of the Lithuanian yeshiva, decidedly non-Hasidic community. I'm referring to the Lubavitcher Rebbe and Rav Yosef Shalom al-Yashiv, two great, brilliant, holy men, but who couldn't have been in many ways more different than each other, and yet they both reach very similar conclusions and have almost identical insights into the deeper religious and spiritual and philosophical message embedded in the technical halachos of the kashrus characteristics of a fish. The Lubavitcher Rebbe's ideas are contained in his Diary, which was published posthumously in a multi-volume work called Rishimos, and in an entry from, of all dates, September 11th, 1941, which, if I'm not mistaken, was shortly after he emigrated to the United States, the Rebbe explains, based on a metaphor from the Masech the Brachos, that the fish are Torah students, Torah scholars, Tamir Chachamim, and water represents being totally immersed in their studies, totally immersed in the Torah like a fish, immersed in the water, the base Medrash. And we see here that in order for a Torah student to be kosher, as it were, to be the right kind of Torah student, like a fish being kosher, the Torah student as well will need both of these characteristics, fins and scales. What is the deeper message? What is the symbolic meaning of this for the Torah student? Scales, says the Rebbe, protect the fish, like a body armor. And this refers, he says, to yiras shamayim, which is not necessarily part of 
a student's learning itself. It's not necessarily the substance of what the student or the Torah scholar is learning, but it refers to the personal characteristic of deep, deep faith, personal integrity, which is necessary to make sure that the Torah learning, so to speak, is on the straight and narrow, that one is being constantly intellectually honest and loyal to the basic tenets and values of Judaism. You need your Shemaim as part of your learning. That's represented by scales. It protects and keeps the learning straight. Fins, however, represent something else. Fins allow a fish to propel itself forward, to move from place to place. And this represents not integrity, but the koch of chiddush, or intellectual and spiritual ambition. Not just remembering and uh, memorizing what you've learned from other people, but coming up with your own ideas, blazing your own trails. Those are the two characteristics of a fish, and therefore, says Lamavach Rebbe, symbolically they are the two necessary characteristics of a Torah student, let alone a Torah scholar. There must be scales, your Shemaim in integrity, but also if you want to be truly successful and great, you also need fin, you also need the ability and the desire to propel yourself forward and to blaze new trails. Now, the Lamavach Rebbe pointed out, as we saw in Nida and in Hulin, even more critical of the two, if we had to say, would be the scales. It says Lubavitch Rebbe, that's because we have to realize that not every Chiddush is correct. Sometimes we become uh, blindly uh, in love with everything that is new. And that is a mistake. Sometimes Chiddushim are absolutely incorrect. And just because we're moving forward doesn't mean we're moving in the right direction. In fact, the Gemara tells Masech to Yuma that if you're not careful, Torah can become not the elixir of life, but the Sam Hamisa, a terrible and dangerous poison. And we know this about Torah but it's true about religion in general. It is the most powerful force in the world. Therefore, it can be the most powerful force for good, asam hachayim, but when it is abused and misused, we know, unfortunately, it can become something very, very dangerous, asam hamisa. And therefore, says Lubavitcher Rebbe, you need your shamayim. We always need those scales. We need the integrity to make sure that the learning stays in the right path that's correct and proper. Rav Yashiv says a very, very similar idea but doesn't focus necessarily on Torah students specifically, rather sees fish as a metaphor more generally for all Jews. As the Medrash tells us in Bamid Baraba, commenting on the Pasuk, Vayidgu Larov, the Karaf Aretz, the Jews are compared to the fish as they multiply. So too, therefore, says Rav Yashiv, just like a kosher fish has two characteristics, a kosher Jew, as it were, also needs these same two characteristics. And what are they? So first of all, scales, very similar to what the Lubavitch Rebbe said, says Rav Yashiv, Scales mean protection from outside influences. We are constantly influenced by things that are around us in our environment. We are awash in a yam, in a, in a great sea, an ocean of influences, many of which are not positive. And we can't be naive. We can't leave our, have no defenses or have our defenses down, as it were, for ourselves or our children. Many of these, defenses, many of these influences are very negative, and therefore we need to have scales. We need to have our protection up. We need to play defense sometimes. However, it's also true that we can't only play defense. It's not enough. Therefore, in addition to having scales, having protection, having a body armor protect us from outside negative influences, we also need fins. We also need to have the ability to swim. We need to move from place to place. How do you define swimming? So here, the Rav Yashif says something so fascinating. The Gemara Masech the Kedusha and Avchavtes tells us that a father must teach his children how to swim. Why? What about other dangers? Why dafka swimming? Why is that something that is singled out? So Rav Yashiv points out that we often see a branch or leaves floating on the water going from place to place. But you don't say that those leaves or that a branch is swimming. Why? Because it's actually just drifting wherever the tide or the current takes it. It's driftwood, as we say. But to swim 
means not just go with the tide or with the current, but to go in whatever direction you want, upstream or downstream, with or against the tide, with or against the current. Swimming, by definition, means you can go wherever you want, even if it's against the forces that are pushing you in one direction or another. Therefore, says Rabbi Yashiv, a Jew has to swim. To be a kosher Jew, so to speak, you need a fin, you need the ability to swim. If we are awash in a sea of influences, etc., we need to know how to swim. Sometimes it's enough to stay where we are and just play defense, but sometimes we need to go against the grain, we need to go upstream, we need to move location, as it were. And that is what a father must teach his children, and that's the characteristics that every Jew must have. The ability not only to play defense, but when necessary, to play offense as well. This is the profound teaching of both the Lubavitcher Rebbe and of Yashiv. The source for the mitzvah de'oraisa of giving tzedakah is located towards the end of Parshas Re'ei. The Rambam and his Sefer HaMitzvos, the Sefer HaChinuch, and others identify the Pasuk in Perak Tezvav, Pasuk Ches, where we read, Ki pasoach tiftaches yodcha lo, you should surely open your hand to a poor person, v'ha'avei ta'avitenu de'machsero asher yechsar lo. You have to open up your hand, and you'll grant him enough for what he is lacking. And that opening of the Pasuk, Ki Pasuk Tiftach, you shall surely open as Yadcha, according to these Rishonim, including the Rambam and the Sefer Achinuch, is the source of the mitzvah of giving tzedakah. Interestingly, other Rishonim identify a Pasuk that just comes two Pasukim later as actually being the source in Pasuk Yud, where we say, Nason Titein Lo, you shall surely give him. I'm not sure if there's any practical difference between which Pasuk serves as the source, but everyone agrees that from here, this section in Parshish Re'eh is the source of the mitzvah da'araisa of giving tzedakah. What's fascinating is that in the Sefer HaChinuch's formulation of this mitzvah and his commentary to our Parsha, the Sefer HaChinuch says that the mitzvah is lasos tzedakah, imat sarach eleha, you have to give tzedakah, give charity to someone who needs it, basimcha ubetuv levav, with a very happy and pleasant disposition. And it certainly sounds like, from the Sefer HaChinuch, that it's not just giving, but your attitude towards the poor person is actually part of the mitzvah itself. Not just a bonus, not just a hidur, but actually part of the mitzvah. Now, this is perhaps sharpened when we contrast this with the Rambam, who both in the Sefer HaMitzvos and in his Mishneh Torah and Hechos Mat does not do that. The Rambam just says, Mitzvah Asei, you should give tzedakah to a poor person as much as you can afford. Now it's true that the Rambam does eventually in Hilchos Manosanim, a few halachos later after he's originally defined the mitzvah, eventually the Rambam does get around to saying that it's very important to give tzedakah with a positive attitude. But the fact that the Rambam separates those sounds like for the Rambam that's a bonus, a cherry on top, a hidur. It's an important thing, but it doesn't define the mitzvah. It's not part of the essential definition. However, it's just striking that at least in contrast, it seems clear that according to the Chinuch, uh, having that positive attitude and that pleasant disposition is not just a bonus, but in fact may be a critical and essential part of the mitzvah itself. Even though giving tzedakah is unquestionably a mitzvah from the Torah, as we're all familiar, it is not one of the mitzvahs that we make a bracha on, which begs the question, how come, despite it being a mitzvah from the Torah, why shouldn't we make a bracha on it? In other words, we should say, to give tzedakah before we actually give the charity. How come it doesn't have a bracha like so many other Mitzvos. So there are two common answers and explanations suggested by the Rishonim. The most well-known one is suggested by the Rashba. And he says the reason is because we know that 
brachos are usually stated before a mitzvah is performed. And in this case, you can't make the bracha before you give the poor person the money, because you never know, he might surprise you and decide not to accept the money. You can never be sure, you can never be 100% positive that the ani will accept the money. And therefore, since it's possible that you would offer the money and then he wouldn't accept it, as a result, says the Rajabah, mitzvahs like this, where it's totally badas achirim, you're dependent on someone else, and it could be that you'll make the bracha, and in the end there won't be a mitzvah, so then he says we don't make a bracha. Interestingly, the Sefer Avu Draham quotes a second explanation, which is that this is the kind of mitzvah which is predicated on someone else's suffering. The only reason we have a mitzvah to give tzedakah is because there are poor people, people who don't have enough, people who are suffering. And therefore, if we were to make a bracha, it would almost seem as if we were celebrating their suffering because it created an opportunity for our mitzvah. Of course, that's not the case, but we are so sensitive even to that appearance, says the Avudraham, that that might be an alternate explanation for why we do not make a bracha. All of this has been about the positive mitzvah to give tzedakah. However, according to all the Rishonim, there's also a concomitant lotase, there's an accompanying prohibition to not refuse to give tzedakah when presented with the opportunity. According to the Rambam and the Sefer HaChinuch, that is from the Pasuk in Perak Tezvav, Pasuk Zayin, which is opening the section. Excuse me, if you have a poor person who's in one of your cities in your land uh, that Hashem gives you, you should not harden your heart. You shouldn't close your hand. Right? Don't harden your heart, don't close your hand, you should give uh, the poor person. And according to the Rambam, the Chinuch, that is the basis of the Lotase, the Avera. Interestingly, the Ramban actually suggests, and others follow the Ramban's lead, that there are two separate Lotases. Not only the one that we just read, but according to the Ramban, there's an additional one that comes uh, towards the end of the section, when we say, Nason Titano, you should certainly give him, Velo Yaira Levavcha Besitchalo. You shouldn't be upset, you shouldn't be resentful, you shouldn't be angry when you give him the tzedakah. So according to the Rambam and the Sefer HaChinuch, there's one low ta'aseh. But according to the Ramban, it emerges that there are actually two low ta'aseh. A final point, which is very, very fascinating, and we can just touch on it, but we won't have time, of course, to do it justice, um, is that a very fascinating machlokas achronim about the nature of this low ta'aseh and the relationship between the positive command to give tzedakah and the negative prohibition to not renege on or not avoid uh, giving tzedakah. Rabbi Haran Wasserman uh, suggests that, in fact, despite the fact that the Rishonim count this as an Avera, as a sin to withhold tzedakah, it's not really an Avera, at least it's not an Avera in its own right. That The Torah, suggests Rabbi Haran Wasserman, only created this additional lav in order to strengthen and reinforce the Asei to underscore how important the assay of giving tzedakah is, to emphasize the need to give it, says Rav Hanan, therefore there is a lotase. But it's not really an independent lotase, it's just kind of a shadow support for the assay. Other achronim disagree, and they suggest that there are two parallel halachos, one the mitzvah, one the avera. And time does not permit an analysis of either of these two positions or the respective proofs, but just to be aware of this fascinating debate and this intriguing position of Ravachana Wasserman and others, that despite there being a lotase, it's not an independent one, rather is just there to enforce and strengthen the assay.